0: to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky... Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? <laughs> I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood.
1: You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, I have found you. I know. I've been gone for what feels like forever. It is so good to be back.
0: People were telling me I should file missing person reports. I just didn't know where you were.
1: (laughs) We almost had a basically like a a Liam Liam Neeson taken situation.
0: I know. It's like I was going to call Audacity and be like, I have a very special set of skills for people like you. Where are my files?
1: So basically we recorded what was probably the definitive Reform Brotherhood podcast. And Mm -hmm. then I promptly lost it.
0: Yes, it's all downhill from here So
1: Yeah, we, we just cannot come back there, Somewhere out there, somebody's going to find Somehow the lost episode And it's spectacular
0: It's going to be like Indiana Jones though. they're going to put their headset on And they're going to listen and then their face is going to melt Like the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> in Indiana Jones And then he's going to be like, this belongs in a museum
1: <laughs> And then it will just get stored somewhere In a government facility Yeah, and referenced in
0: every other podcast That ever
1: comes to be yeah. I, well, then I like our odds. Maybe that was the yeah. best thing.
0: Yeah. So this week we actually are recording correctly, we hope. And we have some redundancies just in case. So better uh, better last week than uh, next week, I suppose. That's true. So, uh, so we're going to continue. Uh, if you haven't listened to what was episode 39, which was a two-part episode with some lectures that I gave at a church um, that I was a part of a couple years ago, uh, you should go back and listen to that because we're going to kind of pick up where that left off a little bit. And uh, we were always intending on this being a two-part episode, so we're going to start today kind of with um, what's called Supra, or it's not Supra, what's called uh, Prelapsarian Anthropology, which is just a fancy word to say, sort of the constitution of man before the fall. So um, we obviously know Adam and Eve were created, and they existed in the garden probably for not very long, um, and then they fell and everything changed. But it's important for us to understand on some levels what they were like before the fall because even though it's not going to be exactly the same after the eschaton um, there's some similarities between what we would expect adam and eve to be like before the fall and what we expect our kind of final state to be um, only sort of more intensified does that make sense
1: yeah absolutely i mean when we go into these topics we're definitely in a foreign land because there's a lot we can draw from the scriptures but we're trying to understand something that's definitely far apart from our current nature but the thing I was thinking about this week in just anticipation of us having this discussion was that, and as I lamented the fact that I lost all that beautiful, beautiful audio that we had recorded, was this is a question that everybody has to deal with. And I'm amazed continually at the number of secular and philosophical debates that are all around the question of what does it mean to be human? Yeah. And in some ways that's really funny to me because certainly we're different than than any other species however it's not like you you run into like groups of dogs like presumably asking each other what does it mean to be a dog so we are unique in this capacity even for those who are anti-theists or atheists they still are asking the question what does it mean to be human so starting way back in the beginning like way back in the beginning in the pre-lapsarian days so to speak is i think the right place to start to answer that question
0: yeah, absolutely, and and we we get a glimpse of it in uh, the Genesis account, which we're not going to read the whole thing. But what we see is, you know, God creates um, Adam, and then he you know parades the animals in front of Adam, and Adam recognizes that none of those animals um, are alike him enough. Uh, to be his companion and his suitable helper. And so God then creates Eve. And that, that tells us a few things um, right off the bat that we can kind of glean right off the surface of the text is that even though Adam um, in Genesis 2 is made from the dust, just like the animals are made from the dust, even though he's animated with a, a spirit and there are some of the animals other places in scripture are said to be animated with a spirit, um, Adam immediately recognizes just in the act of observing and naming these animals that there, that there's something different about him so for all the things that they share there's something radically different as well and that's really important for us to understand because right now you know the the big thing in um, kind of secular thought is that humans are just sort of evolved germs. We're just, we're just another example of an animal. We happen to be a smart one, but you know, intelligence is just sort of there and it's not anything super special. Um, we could have just as easily evolved to be an unintelligent species or, you know, there may be other, I've read some things that say there may even be animals that are more intelligent than us. It's just a different kind of intelligence. And so they're trying to blur those lines between what it means to be human and what it means to be an animal
1: right there there's so much stuff that when we think about this just on the face like you said that astounds me because i think this topic is inherently apologetic because this is the only way that we can impound value into humanity especially if it has a special place in in god's eyes like you were saying so these different elements of Adam that separate him and us from everybody else. This idea that the origin, we were made it, we're in God's mind, but even before the creation of the world, that we're placed at the pinnacle of creation, that we have a right. special relationship with God. And then I, th- I think like you were going for in there, the in instantaneous act of God bringing together material aspects and the breath of life, which is very clear right. in the text. So anytime somebody wants to stand up and support a cause or speak out in terms of human value or worthiness, all of those things are pointing back to this. And yet that's oftentimes like the very thing that somebody is trying to disavow. Yeah, so absolutely. it's just like this weird circular. It's it's so, and this speaks, I think as well, just to the sovereignty of God, his ability to generate in us the faith that precedes our salvation, the order salutis, which is totally off topic. But for me, this is why I get excited about this because it's even though we may think like, well, we, we understand enough. And if you've been a Christian a long enough time, like this is where your training began in some sense, even as a child, just hearing the creation narrative, but there's so much good stuff in here that we just need to continually come back to because it reaffirms how good God is and how valuable we are.
0: Yeah. And we'll get into it a little bit towards the end of this episode. And then also when we talk uh, about uh, the fall and harmatology next week, but you know, it's, they say a lot of times that salvation is driven by eschatology, um, which is true. But in a lot of ways, um, soteriology is not only driven by eschatology, but eschatology is driven by protology. Right. Exactly. And so the the understanding of how we were created in the garden and originally in our in Adam's original uh, unfallen state and. Understanding what he would have become had he succeeded in his probation that really drives our understanding of what or I shouldn't say drives but it influences our understanding of what the final state is. Um, and so that then influences our understanding of what salvation is, because salvation has to be fitting for both our eschatological end and also for the protological beginning that we're looking at here in Genesis. So it's all interconnected. And that's that's something we've tried to land again and again, as we've talked about the systematic theology stuff, is that there's no one doctrine that floats by itself. You know, even, even something like the doctrine of the Trinity is so integrated with our salvation And even the way that our salvation is revealed in the scripture teaches us about who God is and how the Trinity functions and how the persons interrelate with each other. And we talked about that a little bit in the Holy Spirit episode is that the, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation is the same role more or less in an analogical sense that he plays in the Trinity. So he, he is the the bond of love if you want to use that language between the father and the son. And in the same way he proceeds into creation and he binds us to the father and son in love as well. So it's important to remember that no one, no one doctrine stands alone right. in, in our understanding of theology. Everything influences everything. It's like a spider web. When you pull one thread out, the whole thing starts to become weaker. So just to get us off on kind of the right start, I want to read uh, question 17 out of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it says, question 17, how did God create man? Answer, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, Formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to fall. So just to break that down a little bit, Um, you know, it's repeating here that he created man, male and female. It reaffirms the, the method that he used. He created them. He formed the man out of the dust and he used the rib of the man to create the woman. He gave them living, reasonable and immortal souls. So our spirits are the the immaterial aspect. If we are, are there, it's living. It's not some sort of innate or, um, inert substance. It's a living real thing. It's reasonable. It has thought and intellect And it's immortal. And now there's some dispute um, as to what... Exactly. That means, um, you know, it's not the platonic idea that somehow souls are inherently or naturally immortal or indestructible, but somehow God makes them. So he makes them uh, immortal. And that that, again, will play into our eschatology when we talk about um, the, the results or the, the final state of the damned. Right? right. They're 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 sustained souls as well. It's not as though their souls cease to be. There are branches of Christianity that would say that. But somehow those souls persist. And this has made it him after his own image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. So it's talking about the fact that um, humans have a certain level of awareness and understanding. Uh, that's part of the image. Uh they're they're righteous, meaning they're they're in the right relationship with God initially, and they're holy, meaning they're set apart for a purpose, and the law of God is written in their hearts, and they have the power to fulfill that. And that's a major difference between kind of how we are after the fall and what Adam was like before the fall. And so that brings in um some Latin terms that I just love, but I always screw them up. Let's do uh, it. And and it's it's uh the first two options are, they describe Adam's capacities in relation to sin. And so it was, uh, passe pakari which is able to sin and then passe non picare, which means able not to sin. And so all we're saying with those two words is that Adam had the, uh, the, the capabilities both to, uh, resist sin and also to succumb to sin. Right. Um, so we have to affirm that because we, we can't say, Um, It would be improper to say that God created Adam in a state where he couldn't resist sin. That doesn't seem to be what the text uh, describes. Uh, But it also would be improper to say just because it happened that he wasn't able to sin. I had a professor in college or in uh, seminary that, for whatever reason, really wanted to try to say that Adam was not capable of sinning. And I kept on just coming back to him and saying, Anders, I don't understand how you can say he couldn't sin when he did sin, he went, well, some things we right. just can't explain. And I'm like, well, that's just that's just incoherent <laughs> nonsense. Like you're right. not even saying words and sentences that are that have meaning. You're just saying words that don't have any meaning. Um, but it's important for us to affirm that Adam indeed could sin because he did sin.
1: Right. Yeah, and one of the interesting things to me is given the doctrine of original righteousness, that the moral character of man's nature was very good, as you just said, the nature of what would have been merited by adam is is really interesting to me as a question. so mm-hmm. is the implication that if he had completed the dominion mandate that adam would have merited eternal salvation or it, it confirmed his life. i think that voss was big in that kind of topic. Right. i think we'd have to say yes. right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. that's really interesting to think about.
0: yeah, and it's it's we have to be careful because um we don't want to say that in a strict sense adam as a creature could merit eternal life. Right. So and we we talked about that when we did the covenant theology section is that god condescended to adam to provide something he wasn't obligated to provide. Now, we have to be careful we we don't necessarily want to call that grace because grace is kind of a redemptive category, but we could say in a sense that it was gracious because it wasn't obligatory on god's part. Exactly.
1: It's benevolent. Right.
0: But but given that God made a covenant with Adam on the basis of that covenant, God could uh, grant Adam eternal life on the basis of his merits. So it would be sort of like if um, I owed a a million dollar debt and you uh, were generous to me and said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm gonna I'm gonna consider every one dollar you give me to be a thousand dollars, so I could then pay that back not because of anything inherent in myself, but because I was able to pay what you obligated me to pay under the terms of our arrangement. Right. So it's it's important for us to remember that, um, and it's important because. On a, a number of levels, it's important because it's the truth, but it's it's something that has antecedents in previous theology throughout the history of salvation. And I'm, I'm reading um, Grace Alone by Carl Truman. It's part of the Five Solas series getting ready for the 500th anniversary of the reformation. Yeah. And he makes a big point. He starts with Augustine and then he moves on to Aquinas and he demonstrates that in both Augustine and Aquinas, there's this idea that Adam, Adam as a creature could not um, obtain eternal life because there's there's an impropriety impropriety between creatureliness and eternal lifeness, if you want to call it that. And so in both Aquinas and Augustine, God makes this sort of gracious concession to say, even though there's nothing within you that that could merit this, I'm going to make it so that I'm going to accept what you can give me. And then uh, on the basis of what you can give me, I'm going to grant you eternal life. And, you know, the Catholic theology um, starting in Aquinas, you know, Aquinas isn't perfect. Obviously, but starting a little bit after Aquinas takes that and runs with it in post-lapsarian terms. and they call it congruent merit. And the neither Aquinas from my understanding from reading Truman or, Augustine would say that that theology, that idea applies after the fall. They would both say that that's something we're talking about prior to the fall. After the fall, it's a whole different situation. God is not going to accept our good works just because. He's not going to make a covenant with us to accept our good works because they're, they're not only insufficient because they're creaturely, but now they're tainted by sin as well.
1: That's why this is the ultimate of all parallel universes, isn't it? Like To consider, mm-hmm. again, what would have happened if Adam had passed the probationary period, no matter how long that actually was. Right. It's mind-boggling to think about. But I like what you said because it reminds me that even in that promise, in that agreement, so to speak, using really base language, there it's asymmetric. So there is, on Adam's part, a responsibility for obedience. But the reward for that obedience is far and beyond what would have been, quote-unquote, merited by the small amount of stepping forward and honoring the commitment on his part. So even there, like you said, it's important to remember that we're not on equal terms with God, even from the very beginning. It's an amazing act of his benevolence and love and graciousness that he would enter into that kind of communion with us, with Adam. And then for him to mess that up, and then for God to step in in a different way, and to essentially make a way is even more amazing to think about. So that kind of thing is just floors me. It's just amazing to to consider how great God's love for us is.
0: Yeah. And when we talk about this agreement or this arrangement that God made, we're talking about the covenant of works, which is something we referenced in our covenant theology section. And I just want to read another uh, question out of the catechism here. Uh, It's question 20 says, what was the providence of God toward man in the state in which he was created? Answer, The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing of him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect and perpetual obedience of which the tree of life was a pledge and forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So what what the catechism is calling out here is all of these different blessings that God had given Adam, not even as part of his reward for fulfilling the covenant of life. So, you know, most of that that answer is prior to logically prior to the covenant of life. Right. So he puts him in the garden. He, he gives them a task to do. He gives them the freedom to eat from all of the trees of the garden, except the tree of knowledge. Um, he gives them, you know, he gives them marriage for his help. All of these things God gives him without a covenant blessing. Like there's no covenant aspect to that. There was nothing prior to that that could take that away apart from disobedience. And then he enters into the covenant of life with him. And that covenant of life, that's the same thing we're talking about when we talk about the covenant of works.
1: Right. Which is why like I'm prone to remember that. That's one of the reasons why marriage is still so good, right? Because it was mm-hmm. ordained from the beginning. So it was not affected in the same way that other things were, because it was not part of this quid pro quo. Like, if you do this, you will get this, like in a Mosaic or Abrahamic kind of way. So right. it's a wonderful and beautiful thing. And that's why I think it's important to start all the way back at the beginning with this stuff, because... It reminds us just how truly and unequivocally good God is. And those gifts, just like you know, Jesus speaks of in the New Testament, are the good the gifts of a good and gracious and very loving Father. So it that's why it's also this, like we said either in a previous episode or the one that is somewhere in a government facility right now, <laughs> of just speaking about how all of this, how protology finds its fingers in all of these cookie jars about right. our identity and who we are and how we live and how we behave. And that though we try to run from them, we always end up circling back around to them. And, and this is one of those things, whether it's how we define marriage or, first of all, I mean, the catechism is just blowing away that answer because it's so packed full of so much good stuff. And one of the things I love is it speaks about how God created man and immediately throws it into marriage. Right. And, and that's that's not hidden. It's not a subtext. It's not a subgenre of the answer. It's part of the answer. And that's one thing, of course, our world continues to struggle with is what marriage means. And here I think they get it right by putting it right in the context of this is how God created us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, one other thing just to call out um, towards the end where it says the tree of life was a pledge and that's really important it becomes really important in later reform thought is um not later to this because this was towards the end of the development of reform thought it becomes really important in reform thought because you know sacramental theology in terms of covenant theology um it Every covenant has a sort of a sign and a sacrament. A sacrament is a specific kind of sign. And so in, you know, Calvin will talk about how you can't have a sacrament, you can't have a covenant without a sign, and he'll talk about the tree of life as the sacrament of the covenant of works. He doesn't use the language covenant of works, but the sacrament of the covenant made with Adam. And that's important because our covenant has a sign as well. And we, you know, sometimes you think about communion and there's differences between um, Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and how all that works. But in Presbyterian reformed theology. Communion is not so much our pledge or our statement to God. It's God's pledge to us. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it, you know, absolutely. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's, that's just scriptural. But what we mean by proclaim the Lord's death until he comes is that we're proclaiming the, the thing that guarantees our salvation. It's the pledge. It's the guarantee of our salvation Um, that we are able to participate in. And it's God making that pledge to us. And so in the same way that God could promise to Adam, all right, if you do this, I'm going to give you eternal life. Well, there probably wasn't a lot in terms of outward things that Adam, you know, he didn't have a reason to distrust God, but there wasn't a lot in terms of his everyday experience to guarantee that, except he has the tree of life in the midst of the garden that is standing there as his reward. And so he can look at it every day. He can walk by, and this is speculative, obviously, but he can walk by and he can remember, God promised me that if I'm faithful to this covenant, I can eat of that tree and I can live forever. And in the same way, when we come to the Lord's table, we can look at that, we can look at that bread, we can look at that uh, grape juice or wine or whatever you use. We can look at that and we can say, God made a promise to me that as long as I am faithful to the covenant that he gave me, I will have eternal life. And the beauty of our covenant is that that faithfulness is provided for us. We don't have to contribute that ourselves.
1: Right. That's a beautiful thing. That was really helpful and impacting in helping me to conceptualize why it was so important that there would be a tree of life. Right. And bridging that gap by saying this is a part and parcel of the covenant makes it all the more meaningful and sensible to me. It's because I think we would definitely both agree that You must believe, um, in in order to kind of fall into the stream, of course, Orthodox Christianity, but Reformed in particular, that Adam and Eve, this is an actual account, that it's not an allegory, and that all these elements are real, they're not just childish, it's not trying to explain some larger motif or theme, but this is an actual narrative account. And so I think sometimes this idea of well it seems so simplistic, you have two trees, and is this the way God would really do it? And the answer is yes. <laughs> this is the yeah. way that he really did it. And part of understanding the covenant explains that.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things we we talked about um in our last episode um is, you know, it's not it's not the case that it's unimportant whether whether Genesis one is strictly speaking literal history. Um, That's not unimportant, but you can be a Christian and have a different understanding of that text. You can be a Christian and think that the world is 5 billion years old. For sure. But one of the things that I would say you can't be a consistent Christian and think is that Adam is just a fairy tale or is just a myth or an allegory or whatever. And the reason for that, again, that this impacts our soteriology is that Christ Christ is the second Adam. Well, what what sense does it make to say that he's the second Adam if there was actually no first Adam? Right. Why would Christ call himself that if he knows there was no Adam? And why would Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talk about being in Christ as a parallel to being in Adam if you can really be in Christ but there's no such person as Adam, you can't really be in Adam. Those parallels, all of that soteriological language of substitution and, and that stuff just doesn't work if you if you evacuate the text of any sort of historicity.
1: Oh, man. And that's so much of the good stuff, isn't it? Christ as the second Adam. is yeah. so much of the good stuff. So we right. you, you, you just lose out on that. It makes all of that meaningless and absolutely useless. So I, I think that probably most people listening to this would would fall into the same conviction as we would about the importance of understanding Adam and Eve as a literal description. But I think that's one of the things like so many of these other things that's just under attack in this day and right. age. And I've actually yeah, had conversations absolutely. with people recently about that.
0: Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, that's a lot of times when you read commentaries on Genesis, you read about how Genesis, particularly Genesis one, but to a lesser degree, Genesis two was sort of a polemic against the, the religions around the Israelites, Right. So you you see some similarities in some senses between um, Genesis one and some other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, creation accounts. Um, It's it used to be really, really compared to um, a myth or a mythic uh, poem, epic kind of thing called the Enuma Elish. Uh, which I think was Sumerian. I may be wrong. Um, There's been some study that shows that those parallels are probably not as strong as we originally had thought. There's some things that just don't line up. But the idea that Genesis is a polemic Um, The children of Israel coming out of Egypt with their polytheistic system, a lot of the children, children of Israel probably um, hadn't been told the accounts of Abraham and Isaac. Um, Those were oral traditions, but they probably were not passed on as faithfully as they could have been. Um, And they had seen the way that Egypt worshiped. They probably knew the creation myths of uh, the Egyptians better in some senses than they understood the accounts that their fathers had passed down to them. And so they come out of Egypt and there has to be something that resolves that. There has to be something that corrects their thinking. And so God gives Moses the Pentateuch. He gives them Genesis 1 and 2, and that teaches the people of Israel the truth about who God is, that God is not these fickle frail, dying and rising in a, um, sort of a crass sense God. He's, he's not Osiris who gets chopped up and spread out in the world. He's not, um, he's not ISIS who has to go and seek the body. He's none of these gods that are weak and fit and frail. He's the one who created everything and nothing can harm him. Nothing can hurt him. He's not dependent on anything. And so that's the polemic that the Genesis one account gives for the children of Israel. But I think as we look at the text sure we can use genesis 1 as a polemic against the sort of secularized nothing created everything kind of a account but right now in our culture genesis 2 actually serves as a much stronger polemic for the issues that we're seeing right for sure so you know we we see um there there's huge amounts of kids that are raised in the church, and for one reason or another, they go off to college and they abandon their faith. And the studies are showing that maybe it's like seven out of 10 college students stop going to church, and then maybe 50 or 60% of those begin to come back to the church when they reach kind of middle-aged, late 20s. When they start getting married and have families, they start to come back to the church. Um, so the, the one of the main reasons for that, though, is that we're not teaching our kids um, our, not our kids because we don't have kids, but the church is not teaching its children the faith. They're you know they're not building a framework for those kids to apply the world you know apply to the world and see what matches up with truth and what doesn't. And Genesis two just provides a really handy, healthy framework for that. I think that if we really get we really get it, we really understand it, it would really go a long way into understanding what it means to be human and what it doesn't mean to be human.
1: Right. And that's the big difference is spending some time to really invest in a passage that sometimes we think we understand really, really well, but sinking our teeth into it so that we get it. That's a horrible mixing of metaphors, but just the <laughs> idea that we're actually going to wade into it and really try to internalize it into the essence of our being, because this is how this is how things begin. I mean, that sounds super redundant, but this I think is tremendously important. And to your point, I think that helps clarify a lot of confusion, and it brings a different sense of conviction. You know, because, like, when you go to a wedding, like, it's customary that you read from Genesis, and sometimes that's the only time I, I hear particular passages. And, yeah. and sometimes I think they're totally disassociated, except for they have certain words like leaving and cleaving, and we know that right. that happens in marriage, so we got to slap it in there without really understanding why that takes place. And that's something that yeah. God was ordained from the beginning as a great gift.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I, I don't remember trying to think. I don't remember the last time I heard a sermon on anything you know, on Genesis.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, it
0: seems like Genesis 1 and 2 has been relegated to kind of like the realm of the apologist to explain. And I, you don't really hear very often like the gospel preached. You know, every once in a while, right. like you get a tie back to Genesis 3.15 with the, the proto gospel. But I don't remember the last time I heard a real like a real sermon on Genesis 2.
1: I think sometimes it gets relegated to like prolegomena. Like let's get yeah. through the stuff that God gets things going on so we can get to like Abraham right. and get yeah. to some covenantal action because we think that that's where all like the super rich theology is, but we could spend a lifetime just in one and two, honestly trying to understand what everything means. I mean, we can only get to the fourth word anyway, before we understand that this is the a divine autobiography. It's not right. about us to begin with, but then we could t- spend all of our lives just trying to unpack what it means for how God created us before there was even sin in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a pastor, uh, preach on Genesis two, I mean, preach on what you feel your congregation needs to hear, but don't, don't exclude Genesis one and two, uh, in your, your preaching diet. And if you, uh, if you know of good sermons on Genesis one and two that you would like to send me, um, you can send that to us, uh, reform brotherhood at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to listen to some good sermons. That would on be Genesis great. Too. Wait, I I'm just the... realizing like, I don't, I haven't heard a good sermon on Genesis two in a really long time.
1: Neither have I. I mean, I've heard some, you know, I think when anybody gets really zealous and decides they're going to go through the book of Genesis, obviously they start at one and two, but I'm trying to think of one that has really sticks in my mind. That's like super memorable. And honestly, I I can't think of one.
0: Yeah, I can't either. I love I that mean, we I've... just
1: solicited four sermons. So to that effect, I also feel like if you're a pastor listening, and you just want to leave us a sermon by way of voicemail, the number to do that is six zero seven. Six zero seven. Go ahead. Four four four. Bros. Bros. Two seven six seven. So call <laughs> us, and leave a really quick, amazing sermon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I'm trying to even think of like what the point of the sermon would be. And like, usually when I think of a text that's been preached, like I can at least pull out like what other pastors have preached on it. And, and I think that's like, that's to our detriment that I can't even, I have a pretty good memory, especially when it comes to like preaching and sermons and theology. I can't even remember like what a point of a sermon would be from that text, like apart from preaching on the covenant of works, I guess.
1: Right. Right. And it tends to go into like pretty narrowly defined areas. And sometimes that's fine. We we need to hear those things as well. But having like a really broad perspective, trying to tease out, not even tease out because they're certainly there and prevalent. These other things that we've been talking about. I, I would love to hear some more stuff about that.
0: Yeah. So we did want to take a little bit of time and kind of talk about because – This is really the genesis, excuse the pun, of um, the the idea of complementarity between men and women. Um, This really drives our understanding of not only like gender roles in terms of marriage, which is what's specifically being commented on here. But also, you know, a lot of the the biblical reflection on who who should be doing what in the church, who should be doing what in the world, a lot of that comes back to the fact that Adam was created first and he had a task and Eve was created second and was to sort of assist in that task. Um, So Jesse, can you give us uh, kind of a rough definition of complementarianism?
1: So the way that I like to think about this is, And this might be a little bit different than uh, kind of a standard definition, but I always think of it in terms of actually Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I always think of Genesis 1 as emphasizing relational spiritual equality, but Genesis 2 focusing on a positional distinction in the area of function. So that's when I try to explain that because uh, this is not often a very well thought of um, viewpoint, depending on whom you're speaking with. So I always try to to focus on those two things, relational uh, spiritual equality, but positional distinction in the area of of function. You know what I'm saying?
0: I do. And so I I would define complementarianism as the position which would hold that although men and women are equal in dignity and equal in status, um, especially as we talk about equal in dignity and status before the Lord and salvation, um, they're different in function and in role. And you know, I used to say that you wouldn't find anybody stupid enough to think that men and women were not different biologically, but I guess I can't really even say that anymore (laughs) because you read about about crazy stuff on the internet where there's a quote unquote man who's having a baby and what it is really is it's a woman who's mutilated her body but hasn't mutilated it enough that she can't have a baby anymore. And and so that's that's kind of where I stand on on complementarianism is it's about the fact that men and women they just are different. They they're different in physical makeup, they're different in temperament, they're different in in skills and giftings. And now it's not the case um that every man in the world is better at leadership than every woman in the world. That's not at all what I would be saying. Some some people cough cough John Piper would say That um, women should never be in a job that involves leadership over men. Now, I think that's kind of I think that's kind of silly. I think that's reading the text into um, situations that it doesn't speak to. But um, I think it's just manifestly clear that in general, men as a group tend to be more equipped for leadership roles than women that doesn't mean women can't lead but in general men have the skills and the temperament the sort of the thick skinness the ability to take criticism um, the ability to dish out criticism um, the ability to kind of take fire Um, that I think is something that's a stereotypical masculine trait Women, right. on the other hand, have all sorts of giftings that men don't that um, make them equipped to do all sorts of things that men can't. So it's not about, well, you know, sometimes this is framed just in terms of church leadership. Men can be pastors. Women can't. Well, I, I say that's true, but that's so much bigger than that.
1: Yeah, that's making the tail the, the entire dog, obviously. But that's where <laughs> everybody wants to go is what right. is your position on male pastorship versus female pastorship. And, right. and I totally agree with you. But in my opinion, that's like an adventure in missing the point that God has created us with these different sensibilities. Again, this positional distinction in my mind, at least, and I think as the scriptures say, and that that's important and we just cannot get away from it. So I find it so interesting that even in relationships, or just like you spoke about there, which is which is really sad to see the way in which the world is almost trying to Imbue a sense of confusion, especially in younger people now, about who they are and what they are, and depending on how they feel or what they think, that that might, in some way, communicate what they are that would be different from the gender that they actually are. This is getting confusing, even as I say it. That's how I think how crazy this is. But I agree with you that who would have thought that we'd be in a place where even that would come under attack, where it would seem like what is obvious and plain. I guess I'll allow Romans one. That God has made that we would say, no, it's not that way. It, it's yeah. totally different. And I get the right to choose. You know, it strikes me that, like in Genesis 3, there's a clear indication that the sexes reverse their respective roles with the fall into sin. Right. So that both affirms that there were roles, that they were important, that they were God ordained, and that they were good. And so we just spend our lifetime sometimes trying to convince ourselves and others why the role that we do have is not the one that we want or not the one that we we should have. And I wanted to get your opinion on this because this hits home for me because as a husband, it can be very difficult to lead well, especially in spiritual matters, because it's not just a matter of having the right knowledge or being smart enough to feel like you can bring theology to bear, but being able to lead and shepherd in a sacrificial way of putting in the hours and the time with the right intent so that you bring about the right content in your marriage because I do think there's a responsibility given to husbands and men generally uh, to lead their wives in such a way that when they stand before when we all stand before God that he's going to hold us into particular account for that work and that's a hard thing I probably wouldn't I wouldn't have chosen that for myself honestly because yeah. the, the mantle that I feel like I have to bear for that is tremendous But this is the way that God has created us and it is good. And my wife is serving me in ways that we could do a whole podcast just on how great my wife is. Uh, So this is the wonderful thing, but I mean, how do you feel about the responsibility as it falls like into your lap, how how this text actually applies into your life?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, every marriage is different and every person is different. And so I don't think you can give like a one size fits all, you know, these are the five, five steps to pastoring your family. Well, um, but I think for my, for my marriage, um, it's been really important. You know, I've been, I'm coming up on five years here. And, um, one of the things that I've learned for our marriage that's so important is I have to, I have to have my stuff together. So I have to be I have to be in the Word and consistently in the Word if I want to hope to have a spiritual, positive spiritual influence on my wife. And that sometimes that takes the case of like just being an example. So um, for a long time, you know, I I wanted to like read the Bible before bed, like that was just a goal that I had, and Ashley was on board with it. But it just, you know, it just never really materialized. Um, we would do it for a couple nights and then we would stop, and it it wasn't as though like. I don't think there's any great sin in not reading your Bible before bed. It just wasn't, it wasn't working. And what I discovered was that it wasn't working because that was the only time I was reading my Bible was for those, you know, 15 minutes before bed that we would read the Bible together. And so what I've learned is over the last like three years, really, I've been really digging into scripture and really, um, setting aside focused time, um, increasing the amount of scripture I read every day. You know, it started off probably like three, four years ago with like one chapter a day. And then it was like, let me read two or three. And then I was doing the machine, um, you know, Bible reading plan. That's four or five chapters a day. And I think now I'm up to like eight or nine chapters a day, which is not to brag. Like that's, I should be reading more, but as I've been able to practice that, it's getting consistently better. And what I've noticed is that as my spiritual walk has improved, the spiritual tone of my family here has also improved. Uh, And that's not anything conscious that I've done or that Ashley's done um, necessarily. It's just that. So as the leader of a, a unit goes, so goes the rest of the unit. Right. And so as I've, as I've really devoted myself to prayer and devoted myself to scripture study, I can see the spiritual fruit of that in my family. So I think that's the first thing that a husband and a father needs to really get in line is you need to understand that you can have all of the great ideas about how to shepherd your family. But unless you're actually taking care of your own spiritual walk, it's none of it is going to be fruitful.
1: Right. And we get that right out of Genesis. Exactly. I mean, I think what you and I are saying is we're not trying to go to the scriptures and read in the fact that we would like this really heavy responsibility to do right. something that has eternal significance with eternal consequences, we're saying this is clearly the way that God has ordained it and made it. And it's it's on this face. It's very plain. And so we, we have to fall into those roles as we should. And he will bring us, I think, both the blessing and the energy and the fortitude and the wherewithal in, in spiritually, emotionally, and physically to live up to those ways when we truly embrace them as we ought to. But that is yeah. the problem that we often don't do them as we should.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what happens. Sneak peek of the next systematic session. That's what happens with Adam, right? He's, he's standing right there when the serpent comes up and starts talking to his wife. He's standing right there when she plucks the apple from the tree or whatever kind of fruit it was. And he's standing right there when she puts it in her mouth. And instead of slapping that apple right out of her hand, crushing the serpent and saying, what are you doing? We made a promise to God. He just watches her. And then he joins in her sin. Right. And that's like, that's terrible. And there are so many men, out there who do that kind of stuff with their family. They see their wives, they see their kids doing things that are not healthy. And instead of standing up and protecting their family from Satan by being men and doing what they have to do, they just kind of let it happen. And I think that's just a real tragedy or even worse, they're not around, right? The, the, the fatherlessness in our country and in our culture is a total shame. And how can you expect men to, to shepherd their families if they're not there?
1: Right. Yeah, it's, it is a real tragedy, and, and it's part of the reason why so many of these questions come up is because it's not just that we lack role models, it's that we lack role models with regenerate hearts that have right. come to be burdened by this. And I, I want to get a sense by going through this, even as we're talking about it, to be burdened again, that if my role as a person, my identity in Christ, both as being transformed, but as being made in His image— If that has been like just this pile of embers that is kind of dimly glowing, I want through the power of God's word and going back to Genesis 1 and 2 again and again, for God to just blow on that until it burns bright and hot again. Because I think that's where our passion for God should begin, is right where it began for Adam. And it's even more amazing to me that we get to see the whole grand arc, the trajectory of what God has done, because while this is all that Adam saw, we are getting to see the whole thing. Like what sometimes I just think what an amazing thing it is to live in the 21st century, not just in terms of like all the great stuff that we have and the way that we can use that to promulgate the gospel, but just in terms of being able to see everything or a lot of stuff, at least of what yeah. God has done. And this yeah, and, is one of those things.
0: Yeah. And it, you know, it strikes me too, when you think about Adam and Eve, right? Adam had a task. He was to guard the garden. He was to protect his wife. He was to provide for her and he failed on every single account. And the second Adam comes and he does everything for his bride that Adam failed to do. Yeah. And awesome. so it's it's no accident that the second Adam is described as having a bride and he makes that bride spotless and pure and he redeems her and washes her with the word. And then this is the beauty of it. All of those things that Christ actually accomplished, we are commanded to do for our wives. And now we can never do it perfectly but we're commanded to wash them in the word. And I, I don't know exactly what that means. You know, it's not, obviously it's not just like reading the Bible to them, but like to be, to be so engrossed in scripture that when we speak, that's what comes out of our mouths. Like that's where I right. want to be. You know, you read some of the, like the prayers of the Puritans. And if you didn't know better, you would just think they were reading scripture. You know, they were reading their prayers from a Bible that they had written verses down, but that's just, it was so deeply ingrained in their minds that that was what came out when they spoke, especially when they spoke of spiritual things. And so that's, that's what I want to be as a husband is I want to be so in the word and so in the church and so involved in the church and so transformed by the preaching of God's word. And so humbled by the participation in the sacraments that when I come to my wife for anything, whether it's for spiritual matters or whether it's trying to talk about our budget, I want the the Holy Spirit to flow from me in a way that I just sounded super charismatic for a second there. Um, I want I want the scriptures as the spirit brings them forth. To just transform my marriage and my life and my wife Um, and, you know, God willing, our kids and the rest of our family someday. Um, That, you know, that's an amazing kind of a thing.
1: Man, I thought you were about ready to give an altar call.
0: I was going to start speaking in tongues. I had to slow down. I was
1: so ready for that. But that is a really good word. Who could look at this stuff or listen to it and read it and think this is merely forensic? Like there's so much beauty here. There's so much fruit.
0: Yeah. And it you know, it is forensic. It, it has to be forensic, but it can't be just just forensic. And that's, that's part of, you know, that's, I think reform theology has, um, a lot of strengths, obviously, I think it's the best thing there is uh, as far as theology goes. But one of the weaknesses is we get so like, clear on some of our definitions that we start to think that the, the definitions we have are all there is. So we, we want to land so hard on forensic justification right. that we forget that that's just the start. Of our salvation. There's this whole other broad range of what's going on in salvation and in sanctification in our whole lives um, that goes so far beyond the forensic elements that we have to really step back and look at the whole picture.
1: I like what you said there because for me, when I was really wrestling with the lens through which I, I thought that the scripture should be interpreted in terms of its systematic discourse, I found the Reformed tradition so refreshing in lots of ways, but particularly in this one. And that was that it treated the human condition with appropriate biblical balance because it humbles without humiliating and it elevates without inflating. And and I can't find anything else that speaks so cogently to that biblical understanding of who man is and where he stands positionally with God through Christ by the power of the spirit, except in the reformed tradition as it's properly articulated. So like Arminianism, any any other perspective either is going to waver in some way where you're going to feel really awesome or feel really bad. And that goes for like any kind of abuse of either those doctrines or either those, um you know, worldviews, if it's hyper or not. But this idea of being able to be humbled without humiliated and elevated without being inflated is yeah. a beautiful thing, in my opinion. Like that should spur us on because it gets us right in that sweet spot, like right in the pocket, if you will, of serving God in such a way that we understand, well, I'm not justified by good works, but I definitely have been saved for good works. Yeah. And again, we we tie that right back to the beginning, like without question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that's probably a good place for us to wrap things up tonight. Jesse, if someone wanted to get a hold of us, what are the various ways that they could do so?
1: That is a great question, Tony. We are so good at sharing contact information. (laughs) So here's the first thing. If you want to email us, you can do that by, Going to the... Going to? Just using the email address, sending something to. <laughs> reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at reformedbrotherhood, And if somebody wanted to leave us a voicemail, Tony, I'll throw it back to you. What is that number again, especially if you want to deliver to us a sermon on Genesis 1 or 2?
0: That number is 607-444-BROS. <laughs> that number again is
1: 607-444-2767. I love your... Well, how, what would we call that voice? I would say that's kind of like I don't even know. The, the number if you've been injured in an automobile accident and you need a lawyer. It's it, I feel like it's that kind of voice.
0: Like if it's my money and I want it now. <laughs> cash, gold, cash for gold? I was going to say gold fav- for cash. My favorite version of the it's my money and I want it now is the opera commercial. Have you seen that one?
1: Oh, yeah. So good.
0: Yeah. J.G. Wentworth. I, you'll never forget the call J.G. Wentworth 877-CASH-NOW. Like I know the number. I didn't mean to just give a promotion for <laughs> JG Wentworth. I'm sure that he's a crook based on the commercials, but um, I know the numbers. The so it's an, effective, it's an effective commercial.
1: It is. And I only noticed recently, though I probably should have been aware of this a long time ago, that those types of commercials, like the... Have you ever heard of like... I'm just going to say this. Somebody out there is going to identify with this. I'm sure of it. Have you ever seen a commercial, though, for like Metzger Wickersham? I have not. Is that name sound familiar? It's So around here, it's like a common law firm that does a lot of like injury claim stuff, but I was in a totally different part of the country and it was the same commercial, like same guys, same, all all stuff, but different law office. And I was like, I never thought about that before, but I guess it makes sense. They just mass produce these commercials yeah. and like you bought. So I thought like I was seeing like Mr. Metzger Esquire, (laughs) but apparently it's just like a random guy that looks like very legal.
0: You're like, Hey, that's not the guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, what What if I want that guy? Like, what if I call up and be like, I saw Metzger on the commercial. He looked tough. I got an injury claim. I need that dude.
0: I need that dude. On my side. They're like, they're like, yeah, he's just an actor.
1: Yeah, he's just, that That would devastate me as a person seeking justice. But whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in addition to calling us or tweet, <laughs> tweeting at us, segues are our specialty. Uh, we would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, which I guess is now called Apple podcasts. Oh, really? But if you still know it as iTunes, uh, if you could go leave us a five-star review, tell us what you like or what you don't like about the show. Um, uh, that really helps people find us. It really helps us feel better about our lives, helps us justify to our wives why we take like two hours every Sunday night to do this. Um, but in all seriousness, we would really appreciate the feedback if you have it.
1: So do you have, as we wrap up, Tony, any recommendations, any on this topic or just in life generally? I'm curious.
0: Yeah, um, I think uh, that book that I referenced earlier, Grace Alone by uh, Carl Truman, it's, it's really, really phenomenal. Um, Carl Truman, I mean, everything he writes is gold, but this one's really good. Um, and it has a lot to say about, because grace is so driven by what it was like before the fall and understanding the contrast, he has a lot to say about it. Um, You could also take a look at, you know, any good systematic theology is going to tease out some of this stuff. And, um, you know, if you find good sermons, I would love to make a recommendation, but I just don't have any on Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah, hit us up. Hit us up and we'll post them in the show notes as they come in. Uh, We would really love to get those. Do you have any uh, recommendations or closing words of wisdom?
1: Well, I do now because I want to piggyback off something you said earlier. And that is, and I think I'm preaching to myself as well here, is go get a Bible reading plan. And it doesn't matter that it's like almost the middle of the year. Every day is the right day to say, I'm going to get serious about this and not in a legalistic manner, but say, as as you just did, I want to essentially get like pickled in God's word. I, I, want, I want to be changed and transformed. And the only way to do that is to just be washed over with the word. I liked that being reminded about that. So I'm going to recommend, you know, however you do it, like somebody, a million resources online, right? But especially like with all the applications now for mobile devices, Uh, olive tree you version they make it so easy for you to pick a plan even if it's like one of those plans where it's splitting up the bible and it's different genres and you're reading like from a chapter a day at different points in the text they just orchestrate it and align them up for you so you don't even have to flip any pages it's beautiful so i think now is the right time to just get stoked again about wanting to be committed find a place find a time make it a priority in some ways, I guess I would encourage everybody to see what blessings come about from making that a, a priority in your life.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell a really quick story. I, I won't use his name because I don't have permission to, but I have a friend Is it uh, about that Nate? I went to. It, it's not about you. Oh, um, I have a, We'll call him Nate. I have a friend, Nate, yes. who, um, you know, we went to college together and he We kind of follow different trajectories, right? I went to Gordon-Conwell, a a relatively conservative evangelical school, and he went to Princeton Seminary for his MDiv. I think it was an MDiv. And um, he went way off the liberal handle, just flew off the liberal handle. Um, And then – I started seeing posts about Aquinas on his Facebook wall and I started seeing posts about Aquinas on predestination and I could sort of see a little glimpse of hope. And so I started talking to him again and he started reading the Bible and he's he's said on multiple occasions that um, it's amazing how just reading the Bible regularly has reinvigorated his spiritual life. He actually, in a lot of ways, calls it his conversion. He he talks about it like he wasn't regenerate before that. I don't, I don't know if that's the case. I can't see hearts. Neither can he, but he talks about it in that kind of strict of a sense that his eyes are finally open. And it's, he's, it's amazing to me to have watched him over the, you know, four years or however long it was, as he just read the Bible diligently and the Holy Spirit just transformed his life by the simple, straightforward reading of the Bible and surprise, he ended up being reformed. (laughs) <laughs> funny how that works. Um, and, and I didn't do a lot to try to convince him. I would talk about it, mostly answer questions, but just a straightforward reading of scripture also brought him to a robust understanding of, of reformed theology. And he's growing in that, but that's where he is. So he, I cannot emphasize it enough. The Holy spirit works through means and the preached word, especially, but the written red word of God is just such a powerful way for the Holy spirit to move in our lives.
1: Amen, man. That that preaches right there.
0: We hope to see you next week. And until then, honor
1: everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh, what if I'm-